You never get a second chance to make a first impression, or so the saying goes. Fortunately for Apple, that's not true. In the fall of 1991, Apple introduced the PowerBook line of laptops. They were some of the most influential and successful Macs of all time. Their features redefined what a laptop should be. Hollywood power players took lunches with their PowerBooks handy. But the PowerBooks weren't the first mobile Mac. Two years earlier, Apple made its first attempt to create a Mac that could roam along with its users. It weighed 16 pounds and cost $7,300. Thank goodness for second chances. It's 20 Macs for 2020. I'm Jason Snell. This is number 11, the Macintosh Portable. In the 1980s, using a computer was all about sitting at a desk. Mobility in computing meant putting your files on a disk and then taking that disk to another computer. When I was in college, I bought a big padded case that was designed to exactly fit any classic Mac so I could take my Mac SE and carry it home with me for the holidays. The luxury, I could take my computer with me. I couldn't do that with my Apple II. It was very clear even at the dawn of the personal computer era, that people would want to take their computers with them. The first portable computers were so large and heavy that they were referred to as luggables to emphasize just how ungainly they were. In the late 80s, the luggable was about to be eclipsed by a new line of smaller, slimmed-down PC portables that compromised on features like disk and computing power and battery life, all in the service of making these things easier to carry. Well, it was kind of the opposite of a lot of Apple products that are a little bit ahead of their time. This is Harry McCracken, who for many years was my counterpart as editor-in-chief of PC World. Apple was entering this category of luggable computers that were pretty heavy and pretty expensive at the same time that PC laptops actually were becoming more like laptops and downsizing into something that was notebook-sized and was not trying to be as powerful as a desktop computer. When you look at the Mac Portable today, it looks crazy, bulky, and it wasn't really that bad at the time because it it was definitely an established category. It's just that uh, it was starting to trail off. Yeah, it's one of those computers that probably makes sense in a world without laptops. This is John Syracuse. Like if you think of it uh, in the world where the company named Compaq, like that, that was a play on compact as in small, and their first computer, if you looked at it now, it looks like a suitcase. But you can actually bring it somewhere, and it will run off of a battery. And in that context, if you look at the Macintosh Portable, which is very aptly named, it is a Macintosh, and it is indeed portable. You say, oh, I get it. It's like a suitcase computer, but the suitcase is more like a uh, a valise, maybe? Is that what it's called? (laughs) It's very heavy and very big. But the miracle at that point was that all the stuff that you know from a Macintosh now is in a thing that you can use when it's not plugged in. And it had a monochrome screen, but so what? So did my Mac. Weighs 15 pounds. That is quite luggable. This is Shelley Brisbane. And it doesn't look very Mac-like, even for that era. It looks a lot like some of the sort of standalone word processing devices that existed at those times. The Macintosh Portable was a luggable in an era that was over the luggable. It was Apple being a step behind rather than a step ahead. The era of true laptops was coming, but Apple instead produced a relic of a bygone era. Here's John Gruber. Remember the slide when the iPhone came out and there was like, hey, maybe we would do this. And they made like a, an iPod that had a rotary dial. 
It's like, yeah, what if they had shipped an iPhone like that? <laughs> right? That was the Mac Portable. So let me explain the Mac Portable to you. It was a huge white plastic contraption with a slide-out handle that looked a bit like a briefcase. It measured 15 inches by 15 inches, was 4 inches thick, tapering to 2 inches at the narrow end, and weighed 16 pounds. It was not a laptop. The Mac Portable was meant to be set down on a table or a desk, at which point you'd flip open its LCD screen and get to work. You could operate it plugged in or use the battery, which was rated for 10 hours of battery life. Not bad. It almost made it worth all the weight that that lead-acid battery added to the product. Now, in terms of specs, the Mac Portable offered no compromises. Apple essentially jammed an entire Mac SE, including pretty much every port, even the enormous floppy and SCSI ports, into that polycarbonate enclosure. Apple's strategy was not to compromise on power, and they didn't. And it didn't have a mouse. It had a, a trackball, but it had otherwise all the same stuff inside it as the computer that it was based on. It had a gigantic floppy drive and a hard drive and a lead-acid battery and a essentially full-sized keyboard with normal keyboard keys on it. Looking at the Mac Portable now, it's clear that this was the key mistake Apple made. It either couldn't or wouldn't compromise and create a lighter weight portable Mac that lacked some of the features that every other Mac had. Sometimes a name really does tell you everything you need to know about it. It wasn't what we think of today as portability. It was a different definition of the word portable. It was a full Macintosh and you could fold it up and you didn't need a separately connectable pointer device and you didn't need a separate keyboard to also put in. So what was bad about the Mac Portable? I don't even know where to start. The weight, the size, the weight, the price, the weight. But there was a lot of good in the Mac Portable too, believe it or not. So when I was putting this project together, I went to my friend Stephen Hackett and I showed him a list and asked how many of the Macs on the list he had. The answer was most of them. And between his collection and mine, we were perilously close to having them all. I bought a few more. And in the end, we had 19 of the 20 Macs on this list in our possession. Alas, the Daystar Genesis MP eluded us both. The one that I was shocked that Stephen didn't have was the Mac Portable. And every few weeks, I would check eBay for a Mac Portable that looked decent enough to photograph and that didn't cost a fortune. And finally, I found one. It was in LA. I bought it. 300 bucks. They shipped it to me in a huge padded box. And now I have a Mac Portable, and Stephen does not. I'm not even sure I have touched a Mac Portable before this project, and a lot about it surprised me. Not the size, not the weight. It, it, as advertised, is a heavy, ungainly monster. But I can see what Apple was going for. That keyboard is spectacular. It feels very similar to the classic, beloved Apple Extended Keyboard, it's tactile and responsive in a way that the next-generation PowerBook keys are not. Next to the keyboard is a trackball, which you use as a pointing device. And Apple even designed the keyboard and trackball so their positions could be reversed if you were a lefty. Or you could remove the trackball altogether and replace it with a number pad if you needed to crunch a lot of numbers and were willing to plug in an external pointing device when you worked. As a left-handed person, I love the fact that you could put the trackball on either yeah. side of the keyboard. Um, I wouldn't choose to use a computer that big and bulky in order to get that feature, but at least they thought about us. Southpaws. Yeah, it was still an era where most 
notebooks even did not come with built-in pointing devices at all. And there was this whole market for clip-on trackballs and people were much more likely to use mice. And uh, just the idea of a pointing device of any type was still um, kind of on the bleeding edge of what people were trying to do. So it had a trackball, right? But the button for the trackball was essentially a small space bar, which is very strange. I don't think there's ever been a computer, uh, certainly not a Mac computer since then, where essentially the mouse button was a keyboard key. Like structured the same way, functioned the same way, a little plateau, just like the space bar. It's just shorter. It makes some sense, but it's just not what we do. Like trackpads never had keyboard buttons for, for their keys. Mice don't have keyboard buttons on top of them on the Mac anyway. Kind of weird. Then there was the display. It was a monochrome display, as most Macs were back then, but this was an active matrix display. And that meant it was a cut above all the other LCD screens that were out there. The thing that always stood out to me about this, it had that special Apple something. Now, I'm not saying this was a good computer, but the special Apple something in this case is the Active Matrix LCD screen. All the other portable computers that had LCD screens had terrible ghosting. And ghosting is a much bigger deal on a computer that always has a mouse cursor because you're constantly moving this little thing around the screen and ghosting would leave this trail of little mouse cursors all over the place. But this thing had a very expensive at the time Super advanced technology, active matrix screen with transistors behind each one of the pixels, so it could actually turn them on and off very quickly. And you'd move the mouse around, and it would look essentially normal. And that was the the ultimate luxury in portable, and that's what put this in a class above all of the lesser portable computers. That aside, you're still left with a 16-pound computer that you can kind of lug around that you would definitely not want to put on top of your lap because it would probably cut off circulation to your legs. I should mention that while the screen was excellent, it also wasn't backlit. Think of early Kindles. You could only use the Mac Portable in a well-lit room. Now, Apple eventually started selling Mac Portables with a backlight added on, and you could retrofit your original Mac Portable to have a backlight, but it dramatically decreased the battery life. Mac Portable's introduction is, quite surprisingly, available to watch on YouTube. In it, Jean-Louis Gasset, who was Apple's president of Apple products, whatever that title means at the time, he assembles a Mac Portable from its component pieces right on stage. This was a shtick of his. He had done the same thing when he introduced the Mac 2CX. It never really did much for me, I've got to admit. But at the launch of the Mac Portable, there's also this amazing promotional video. this pulsating 80s instrumental music and a whispered vocal keeps saying Macintosh over and over again. There are also some incredibly laughable shots of the Mac Portable in action, my favorite of which being carried by a mountain climber to the top of a mountain. Sure, why not? Now I get why they did it. This was the first battery-operated portable Mac, so why wouldn't you show it in some outlandish locations like the top of a skyscraper under construction or out in the middle of a field with a surveyor? The same rationale was undoubtedly behind the November 1989 issue of Mac User Magazine, which famously featured a woman wearing a red swimsuit and sunglasses, floating in a pool chair, holding a cordless phone to one ear with a drink and some documents on one arm of the chair and a Mac portable on the other. I worked at Mac User Magazine a few years later, and that cover was still infamous among the staff. I checked with my colleague at the time, Shelley Brisbane. She preceded me at Mac User by a little bit, and she confirmed it. 
I think that the ripples of that cover were still being felt even when I arrived. <laughs> MacUser at the time was led by publisher and editorial director Paul Summerson, who ended up having a long and legendary career. I'm always interested in Paul, not primarily because he was a student of my father's at Reed College in the 1960s, and not only became a very successful computer magazine editor, but a real character. I'm always interested in thinking about his brain at work. Now, back in the 90s, I got the distinct impression from my coworkers at MacUset that Paul Summerson pushed sexist imagery on his magazine covers a bit too often. And I did a little survey of early 90s MacUser covers and came up with at least two others that I would consider quite questionable. The Mac Portable cover, believe it or not, is by far the least sexy of the lot, mostly because that poor woman looks like she may be about to tip over into the pool, which would take her $7,000 laptop with her. Welcome back to Liftoff, where we discuss space and related subjects from the early 1990s. I'm Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, a man who does not own a Mac portable, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Wow, you introduced me with such a burn. Yeah. Oh, I've already burned you in this episode. You just haven't heard the rest of it yet, but you should listen back to the podcast that you're on right now for <laughs> earlier before this one. Let's uh, take you, let's sweep this all away to Space Shuttle Mission STS-43. We're going to talk about STS-43, which launched, it was Space Shuttle Atlantis. It launched in August 1991 with five people on board and a Macintosh portable. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah. Nine days. They launched a satellite. They tested a bunch of stuff for the International Space Station. And most notably, they sent the first email from space. That's pretty cool. From a Macintosh portable. It's true. Using Apple Link. Which is long gone. No one remembers. August 9th, 1991. Apple Link running on the Mac Portable, sent the first email from space. Astronauts Shannon Lucid and James C. Adamson were the ones who sent the message, and I'm going to read you the message now, Stephen. You ready? And then I want your interpretation of this. Here's the message. Hello, Earth. Greetings from the STS-43 crew. This is the first Apple link from space. Having a great time. Wish you were here. Send Cryo and RCS. Hasta la vista, baby. We'll be back. It's a very 1991 email, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It was the 90s. Now, I know, I know you were you were but a wee lad in 1991. It's true. Just a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me let me give you some interpretations here. Cryo, send, send cryo. That means uh, the cryogenics, which is basically like air. Uh, it's the life support stuff. RCS, reaction control system, that's fuel for maneuvering. Yep. So essentially the joke here, if we can call it a joke in the first email sent from space, is we want to stay up longer. Send yeah. more cryo and RCS. These are the things we need to stay here. And then Asta La Vista, baby, will be back. Uh, Terminator 2 came out that summer. So that's a pop culture reference being made there. Terminator 2. It's a pretty good movie. I guess it's a classic now because it's Is it? almost 30 years People old. People consider Terminator 2 a classic? It's kind of a classic of, of the blockbuster genre. Anyway, they sent this email to Marsha Ivins, who was another astronaut who was acting as the shuttle communicator at Johnson Space Center in Houston with the help of a gentleman named Dave Krigo, who was an engineer at Apple. Now, how do I explain Apple Link? How would mm. you how would you tell people what Apple Link was? It wasn't email in the sense that we think of email now, where I can just email anybody and anybody can email me. Apple Link was more or less internal, and then it kind of got spread to like dealers and then some like and Mac developers, student yeah. user group. It was, it was email within the the tightly knit Apple community. I think is how you could say that. 
Yeah, if you think about an AOL kind of thing, yeah, it was kind of like that where you'd log in to Apple Link and then you could send mail within Apple Link to other Apple Link addresses. So this wasn't an internet email, but it was an email. And when I mention AOL, that's actually important because Steve Case, the guy who founded AOL, he his company actually designed what they called Apple Link Personal Edition, and that code essentially became AOL as well. And in fact, there's stuff in the early days of AOL that was actual like artwork and stuff that were generated mm-hmm. by people at Apple for Apple Link. So AOL came out of and, and Apple seemed to make nothing out of that, which I find very funny. But Apple Apple could have like invested in AOL and made a lot of money and that didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So um the reason they use the Mac on the space shuttle is actually all about pointing devices, which I find fascinating. Obviously there was the built in trackball on the Mac portable. But NASA wanted to experiment with a bunch of different zero gravity pointing devices essentially because the traditional mouse at that point was like a a physical it was like a ball right. inside the mouse and they felt like that wasn't going to work in zero gravity so they used the Mac portable which had its trackball they had a big 2 inch trackball that they also tried out they had a modified uh, aircraft control stick with a little ball on the on the thumb at the top and they used an optical mouse which is what we now think of as a mouse where it uses like a laser and tracks movement over a surface rather than the old method, which was the ball would roll and there would be little wheels above the ball that would Mm -hmm. be rolled by the ball. And those wheels determined the direction the mouse was moving. Now all mouses are optical, but back then they tried all of those. So that was one of the reasons they used the Mac portable, even though there were generally not Macs in space, they generally were using DOS laptops at this point. Macs in in space. It's true. Like that. And other uh, other things they did, they logged some data from medical tests they ran on themselves, and uh, they monitored their location in orbit and their position relative to the ground using a custom app called, I think, intentionally, Mac Spock. Oh, that's good. Which was Shuttle Portable Computer. No, so that's not a bad acronym, I guess. It's it, it's silly. I guess I guess that's what they're doing. So anyway, this is, uh, and also if you look on YouTube, you can find the video of them injecting a floppy disk. It is delightful. <laughs> the disk just flies out and then just keeps going because yeah. It's space. It's fantastic. Uh, one nice detail about this that I like is anyone on Apple Link, it was all public to other Apple Link users. So like everyone could just look up anyone's username and they didn't want people emailing the the astronauts or NASA, right? They didn't want to sp- basically spam their, uh, their mission. And so they had several different email addresses in Apple Link to disguise which one was the actual one that was hooked up to the Mac portable aboard Atlantis. I just love that detail that they thought about it, right? It's like, oh gosh, rightfully so. People are going to like email the astronauts. Like, why wouldn't you want to do that? It's such a cool historic thing. So they uh, they built in some uh, security through obscurity, if you will. Yeah, they had some honeypot addresses, including SDS43 at Apple Link, That's which good. people yeah. did send messages of goodwill to, but they didn't go to the astronauts. So instead they had a special custom system where they were talking to the back end of Apple Link uh, over the data connection that the space shuttle had. And it was all, you know, not real, but like they set it up to do it. And and that was that that really inspiring, <laughs> having a great time email <laughs> was the first email sent from space. So, you know, Mac Portable, it's part of space history. Who, who would have guessed that the one of the heaviest Apple notebooks would be the one to go in space? Yeah, you can do the calculations. It was a lot of money. It was it was cost a lot of money to propel that amount of weight into space. 
<laughs> but they did it for science. And you love space and you love old Macs and yet you don't have one. I'm oh, just God. saying. I've got mine right here. Okay. Anyway, that's it for this mini early 90s throwback episode of Liftoff. Uh, now back to the podcast you're actually listening to. Say goodbye, Stephen. Goodbye, Stephen. Here's the bottom line. The Mac Portable missed the mark. It was too heavy, too big, and right at the time when the rest of the PC world was realizing that people would take compromised devices as long as they were lighter and smaller. And I think they discovered pretty quickly that with a um, portable computer, portability trumps everything else. And people are, are willing, or and especially were willing back then, to buy something that's not super powerful if it's easy to take with them. When we first started talking about it, I was going to be more generous to it and say, well, nobody knew how to make a laptop then. But then there's a part of you that really has to look at it and say, this is exactly what they missed about Steve Jobs in that thousand no's for every yes. This one should have been a no, maybe even late in the game, where there should have been someone who's willing to say, this is amazing. It's a real product. It is useful. This is not something we should ship. We should go back to the drawing board. And it doesn't need to be tweaked. It needs what actually did happen. There was no second <laughs> attempt at it, right? And and it wasn't like the next thing was a 1.1 version or even a 2.0. It was sort of a, well, let's just create a new category. So, second chances. It took Apple two years to come up with an alternative to the Mac Portable, but the company took two different approaches to solving the problem. Yes, it did set its designers and engineers on a path to create a more compact, more compromised set of laptops, which would result in the creation of the PowerBook 140 and 170, which would lead Apple's mobile strategy back out into the light. And the PowerBook line and MacBooks thereafter have basically been incredibly successful in the single most influential line of portable computers for almost 30 years now. So on the second try, they really did figure out what the future was. And in some ways, while a lot has changed between the original PowerBook and the current MacBook, there's also lots of consistency in terms of the, the general goal. But there was another path, too. Some portion of Apple management was so impressed with Sony's ability to make smaller and smaller gadgets, especially cameras, that they became convinced the solution to fixing the Mac Portable was to provide its specs to Sony and pay it to build them a smaller, lighter laptop. Okay, a few problems with this. First, what a devastating lack of support for your own people. You're a computer company, and you're begging another computer company to design your computer for you? What's worse... The people who built computers at Sony weren't the geniuses who were working on those cameras that impressed Apple so much. They were the people in the computer division at Sony, and their work was less inspired. Now, these two groups did collaborate with one another. Sony's design for a slimmed-down Mac portable was targeted at an enclosure that matched what Apple's own group was working on. In the end, what Sony produced was sold as the PowerBook 100, which at a glance, looked just like the 140 and the 170. But the PowerBook 100 was lighter than the other PowerBooks and lesser than the other PowerBooks. It had no floppy drive, which was kind of a calamity at the time. It was using the Mac Portable's two-year-old internals, so it was cheaper, but also quite a bit slower than those other PowerBooks. In the end, the PowerBook 100 was a footnote. The future of Apple's laptop line was bright thanks to the PowerBook 140 and 170. PowerBook 100, like the Macintosh portable before it, 
belong to the past. This has been 20 Max for 2020. It was written by me, Jason Snell. Thanks to Shelley Brisbane, John Gruber, Stephen Hackett, Harry McCracken, and John Syracuse. Paul Kafas has inspired our space shuttle deep dive. Brian Hamilton provided post-production help. I'll be back next time with number 10.